Time to play science fair project and then afterwards we're going to be lawyers and then afterwards we're finally going to start talking some baseball because we're going to talk about two players that have had tough starts of the season but maybe they're affected by the fact that offense is down that's what i mean when we're talking about science fair projects because we're going to try to figure out why offense as a whole is down in the month of April. But Aram, you have different news. Well, this is the Just Baseball Show. It's Wednesday, April 27th. I'm Peter Apple. That's Aram Layton. That was one of the worst intros I could get into. But what's going on with Jacob DeGrom? Because everything's nuts right now. So I, I don't what So first of all, science experiment, because this is what we have to do to figure out why baseball is is just weird and the offense is down. So we're going to get into the most complicated thing in the world, which is just what are we doing to the baseballs? But the positive news is Jacob DeGrom's stress reactions healing really well. Um, and, you know, that was one that I surveyed almost every pitcher. I want to see every pitcher's two cents on it. And they said, hey, stress reactions, they can heal fine. And there's no like residual issues from that. It's not like rehabbing a shoulder and then it gets bad again. And like if it's healed, it's, it's kind of gone. So really good news there. And to throw it back to you. If Jacob DeGrom is 80% or let's even say 70% of what he was last year, what do the Mets look like? Are, are the Mets the second best team in the National League at that point? I think you have to say that they are. I think they're right behind the Dodgers, right? Yeah. I mean, the Giants are pretty incredible right now. And the Braves, although off to a slow start in terms of their record, are still fantastic. Yeah, not worried. The Brewers I'm a little bit worried about. I think you have to put the Mets as the second best team in the National League. And I think they're right there already, Arm. So if when they get yeah. Jacob DeGrom, I think they're competing just with the Dodgers. I mean, I really do. It's crazy, right? Because you have a team that's that's already pretty close. And oh, yeah, we might just get that Jacob DeGrom guy back uh, to, to give us just a nice little boost. Uh, it's wild how, how talented this Mets team is. And are we drinking the Kool-Aid? Like, we're not going to say, oh, it's the Mets, blah, blah, blah. Like this team looks different, right? This team looks different. There's a new energy around it. Buck Showalter being their manager, their offense has come to play. The bullpen even looks improved. And they have such a deep array of starting pitching. There's no no more of the days of the Joey Lucchese's of the world. <laughs> and David Peterson might get a spot start, but he's not the registered four in the yeah. rotation. It goes so deep. And now you're going to get Jacob DeGrom and improve Tyler McGill. Bassett's incredible. Carrasco has been great so far. And of course, you have Max Scherzer at the top of the rotation. And it'll be interesting because tomorrow we're doing top 20 pitchers or no, it'll be top 10 with our honorable mention pitchers. And we'll see where all of these guys end up stacking up. Final thoughts on DeGrom is uh, he said considerable healing. Once the bone heals, then we'll be ready to go and build up from there and hopefully be healthy for the rest of the year. Uh, the hope is that they'll reevaluate in a week or so and that he could be back in the next few weeks, which would be great news. But anyway, kicking it back to you. So we were talking about pitching, and pitching has been what has 
dominated baseball so far. The big news that we're hearing is that offense as a whole is down, and it's marked by a current 232 batting average and an OPS below 700 for the average hitter in Major League Baseball. And what those two numbers are, as as I know that you're a baseball fan, if you're listening to this, that's just straight up not good. That's like an... That's like a bad defensive or bad offensive middle infielder giving you a 232 batting average. But now that's the average hitter in baseball. And Eno Saris, who's one of my favorite writers, yeah. personalities in baseball, um, he has a great podcast. And he wrote an article on The Athletic detailing why baseballs aren't flying as far and home runs are down across MLB. Is it the ball itself? And that's what the article is titled. And he wrote it with Ken Rosenthal and Aram, the first line of the article, it's not just your (laughs) imagination. So I'm going to throw it over to you now. What, when we went through the article, what I guess were the main things that you saw that kind of scared you, if that makes sense. Well, you know, what's funny is, is right. As I started reading it, a, a bunch of different plays just jumped into my head before we even get into like the details of the article to so start reading about it. And just the ball, not flying as far. And then I remember Gary Sanchez pimping a home run. That wasn't a home run. You know, you remember that uh, at the earlier points of the season, broadcasters getting duped more than ever, right? They're getting into their home run call and it's not gone players with just this awe stricken look on them. When the ball doesn't get out, it's because the sport's different. The, the ball that they are used to seeing leave the yard. I mean, you hit enough home runs. There's a reason why these guys bat flipping. They know it's gone the second they hit it. So when a guy thinks it's gone and it's not, it shows you. That's almost like the proof in the pudding that the ball isn't going as far. But what Eno Saris and Ken Rosenthal do, as you mentioned, they put it into data and they, they show it beyond the anecdotal stuff that we've seen into statistics. And the, the reality is the ball's just not flying as far. And if you look at the percentage of fly balls, a lower percentage of, a percentage of them are leaving the yard. The average distance is lower. And it gets into such a complicated breakdown of everything. But what really stands out to me is all of the gymnastics we're going through to try to make sure that the baseball is consistent. We added humidors. Why? If the baseball is flying not nearly as far as it ever has, what was the point of adding the humidors? It doesn't seem to be helping very much. It was better off last year. So to summarize, there are a couple of different problems that he talked about in this article. It's the difference in the balls from year over year. There's the implementation of humidors at these different stadiums. And also that, like I said, that the ball is just a little bit more bouncier. That drag in the air that the carry of the ball has been worse There's a lot of different also that it's April, that in general, it's a little bit colder, that offense is a little bit more down, that spring training, there was less spring training, so batters couldn't get as many reps. We thought that might affect the pitchers, but it's really started to affect the hitters. So all of these different elements are now colliding, and what it is is we have the lowest home run rate by year In the last decade, I mean, since the 1980s, that's when these numbers are starting to line up back in the 1980s. So, Arm, let's start with the ball, because the ball in itself is clearly not the ball that we had in 2019. It's clear that this ball is just straight up not as bouncy. Uh, So here's my question. Why is it so difficult? Like, 
why can't we just make a ball and stick with it? And Major League Baseball is in charge of, of, of creating the baseballs. Like they, they are oversee the factory that creates the baseballs. We saw the manipulation of it. That was a story last year on primetime games, having more juice balls and whatever it may be. Why not just have one ball? This is so crazy, right? Have a baseball that is pretty decent. The ball flies a little bit and you just stick with it. Like we're, we're debating what temperature we're setting the humidor to based on the park and based on the time of year. And, you know, all of these different moving parts, does it really need to be that complicated? I just don't know why this has become such a thing. Uh, but for them to try to figure this out now, all I'm going to say is you better get a baseball that flies a little bit better because we're moving, we're banning the shift. We're doing all of these things. We're cracking down on sticky substances to try to make offense you know, more prevalent in baseball. And then the very object that the sport is centered around is now counteracting all of those efforts. What's the point? I, I don't have the answer for you. That's the problem. But at least from the article, and this is directly quoted, because the drag on the ball is higher. I don't know if I misspoke there, which means yeah. that it's harder for the ball to carry. Correct. And But we know that two balls were used last season. This is straight from the article, thanks to Bradford, William Davis, and Dr. Meredith Wills who used production codes to show the distinction. The original ball intended for use in 2021, according to a memo obtained by The Athletic, was supposed to reduce batted ball distance by around two feet. And that ball, the league says, is the only ball in circulation this year. Why in the world would we choose a ball that promotes less offense, Aram. That's a question for you that I know you don't have the answer to because nobody has the answer to it. And why did we ever have two balls? Why? What's well, going on? Two different, like that's, it's, this isn't the three point contest with the money ball on the other rack. Like this is a serious sport where you have, that's the one constant is, and, and again, well, I was going to say that, that the bases are 90 feet apart, but they, that's even changed. Like it's so weird how a sport that is so set in traditions and you know, not straying from, you know, what it has always been goes so out of its way to <laughs> make these things so weird, right? Like, oh, it's baseball. It's traditional. We're not going to change it. Oh, but by the way, we're using two different baseballs this season. And then, yeah, if you're going to pick one, why pick the worst one? You are already going through all these measures to try to make offense more prevalent. And, and now it's not. What stands out the most to me, and it goes into the drag point, Peter, uh, that, that you just mentioned Batted ball velos are higher than ever. So if you're looking at the exit velocity, it's as high as ever, which shows that the spring off the bat, the ball is fine, but it's not carrying in the air as well, which is wild. And, and I wonder just what kind of impact these humidors really have, because that's the whole point of humidors is, is so that the ball carries and it's, it's not helping that at all. So are we changing the settings of the humidors? Are we like, this seems overly complicated to me. I feel like you could just make a better baseball, but I feel like they've already made a million baseballs. So they're going to have to adjust the humidor settings and work with these scientists. But the fact that this story is out on the athletic tells me that major league baseball is already on its way to try to sort this thing out. And I'm sure they will. And they quantified it, the humidor, for example, barrels. So what a barrel is, and you'll see this on baseball savant, a barrel is a ball hit 95 miles an hour with an average launch angle between 18 to 34. 
those balls are deemed as the most successful events in baseball because generally they result in home runs, doubles, extra base hits. You're much more likely to get on base if you hit the ball above 95 miles an hour between that certain launch angle. But stadiums that installed a humidor this past offseason, barrels are coming up 10 feet shorter. That's according to this article. So we know that teams that implemented a humidor in their stadium those hard hit balls are strictly not carrying. So we have a combination of a not very bouncy baseball, or at least not the 2019 baseball, that they're coming off the bat well, but not to the extent that they were. That was my best scientific explanation. Because what I really want to say is this is all bullshit, Aram. Yeah. And they would just use a ball that Glaber hit 38 home runs with, and now he can't hit. Arm now he can't hit since it's this is all a conspiracy to get Glaber. Uh, yeah, it, it's just funny. They it drive- all comes back to Gary Sanchez and it, it starts and ends with him. Yeah, he did this, he did this, and well, he got he got duped by this, right? And it's it's wild to me because you know they're treating these baseballs like like golden eggs, right? Because they're going to be keeping them in the humidor, they have to be treated perfectly, uh, and, and they want to remain like consistent with the baseball. It just seems like this way overcomplicated concept where if you just make a baseball that flies pretty well, let's not worry about the humidors and putting the balls in the humidors for however long and having the settings optimized to the weather and all of that stuff. Like just make a baseball that flies and roll with it. It can't be that complicated. It never was in the past. Why are we like baseball just always finds a way to get in its own way. And this is just like the latest example. And we have another example. So what is the Yankees? letter. The Yankees letter was a document. It was, it was basically Brian Cashman argued that in 2017, the Red Sox were stealing signs using Apple watches. So what the Yankees did was they asked Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball to look into it. And the Yankees, according to Randy Levine, who's the president of the Yankees, did not want this letter released because he felt that it would be really bad for not only the Yankees, but the league. But it came out today that basically nothing happened. I mean, obviously, it was shown that in 2015, 2016, the Yankees were using a dugout phone to relay signs. Ash or the Red Sox were doing a similar thing. But it all ended up being because the Yankees and the Red Sox, the Yankees were actually fined $100,000. But the Yankees aren't going to get in the same amount of trouble because they actually didn't break any rules at the time. Mm -hmm. So that's the interesting part about the Yankees letter. Aren't you just glad that we finally get to sort of close a chapter on this whole thing? Yeah, I'm tired of it. You know, I've just, you know, I've heard enough. It's it's pretty simple, too. I think Jeff Passan had a really good breakdown of it. He said, let's start with the facts. New York Yankees cheated. The Boston Red Sox cheated. The Houston Astros cheated. But there's a stark difference in the way that the Astros cheated versus the way that the Yankees and the Red Sox did. I mean, the Yankees and the Red Sox are not banging on a damn trash can. Like the the, the egregiousness of that uh, to, to you know go through those lengths to cheat is just different. You know, it, it's all bad, and I know it cheating is cheating, and you can call it black and white. But it, it, for MLB, they have to look into how comprehensive this scandal was, and there's no scandal more comprehensive than the Astros cheating scandal. And it's that simple. What's, what's funny to me is I'm expecting, and you're expecting this too, this letter to be some massive bomb, you know, some, some crazy thing that, oh, it turns out the Yankees did the same thing the Astros did, or the Red Sox did the same thing too. 
it really wasn't a bomb. And it makes me wonder why they were, you know, working so hard to try to keep that thing under wraps and really make sure that that story didn't come out because as Jeff Passan put it, it was kind of a nothing burger. Thing is, I just don't understand why it was such a big deal. Why Randy Levine said, I'm curious if almost the way it's being reported is because it's really making it seem like the Yankees and the Red Sox did nothing. When in reality, they didn't do nothing. They were still cheating and relaying signs using dugout phones. But the matter of the fact is that most teams do that. But I'm just so confused why the Yankees were so afraid to have this out because MLB stressed in a statement on Tuesday that the Yankees did not violate sign stealing that existed at the time. That yeah. This is from the article again on The Athletic. MLB stress in a statement Tuesday that the New York did not violate league rules around sign stealing that existed at the time. So why was Randy Levine and the Yankees so afraid of letting this out? Uh, so there is the one thing that Passon said that was like the Yankees and the Red Sox were illegally using the replay room to steal signs, but neither scheme was anything close to what the Astros were doing with trash cans. Other teams were very likely doing similar things to New York and Boston. That element spanned the game, meaning it was everywhere. So they didn't break any egregious rules. They were a little bit murky with the replay room. Those rules have continued to shift and those rules have been cracked down in terms of like video you can use during games and things like that. So, you know, I mean, remember the Red Sox with the Apple watches and things like that. That was the Red Sox, right? I, yeah. It's it's just, it's endless, right? There's always little, little ploys here and there, but the difference is little ploy bending the rules versus one of the most, if not the most ridiculous and biggest scale cheating scandal of the modern era is the difference here. And I think it's pretty clear that nobody is sniffing what the Astros did and major league baseball took the measures to make sure that the bending of the rules is more difficult to do. And the Yankees and, you know, Red Sox get the slap on the wrist, but MLB is able to tighten up and make sure that those things aren't possible anymore. And that's that. And I think, you know, at this point, the Astros are not going to be able to bang on trash cans anymore. The Yankees and the Red Sox can't use the replay room illegally. It'll be really hard to get away with it. And let's just play ball. You know, I got, that's what I'm looking forward to. So I'm glad this letter's gone or out. And now we can just forget about it and move on from that whole scandal. Cause I feel like that was like the last domino to fall. Like it was like the still this one last little thing. And now we can just say, okay, it's all behind us and let's move forward. And if you're looking for punishment, the Yankees were fined $100,000. Oh, geez. <laughs> that's, that's almost nothing. I mean, that's not even a real punishment. That's that's a rounding error. The Steinbrenners are going to pay that in pennies. Pennies. So let's talk actual baseball now. Let's talk actual baseball now. We're going to talk about two players that we have been seeing have gotten off to a bit of rough starts because I think um, probably a constant thing in your DMs, a constant thing is mine, is, is this player okay? Is this yeah. team okay? So I think we really wanted to talk about it because there are, and a lot of these players have come up in our DMs of guys that people are worried about. So we wanted to dispel that narrative or be like, you know what? Maybe you should be a little bit worried, even though it's early. So Aram, I'm going to throw it over to you for your first player. Who's one player that you feel like has gotten off to a rough go, but you think is going to be totally fine? Yeah, the most obvious, and I think the guy that is is the safest bet to be just fine is Kyle Tucker. Uh, we, we've talked about how we, we were expecting Kyle Tucker to be an MVP candidate this season. 
And frankly, that hasn't changed for, for me. Uh, you can look, I mean, anyone can go to a Savant page and look and, and it looks good, right? But you look at the numbers, 517 OPS thus far, uh, two home runs, 10 hits and 59 at-bats. But the expected batting average, 294, the expected slugging, 587. Uh, and what really stands out to me is that he's hitting breaking balls hard. He's been hitting fastballs well. The whiff rate is not bad. He's still walking. He's still really keeping the strikeouts in check. Uh, to me, Kyle Tucker looks like a guy who really needed a few extra ABs in spring training and has simultaneously been unlucky. Uh, I am not worried about him in the slightest. His swing still looks good. Everything looks good from what I've watched, and the data backs it up. Uh, the numbers are ugly, but, man, he'll have a good week next week, I bet, and we'll forget that Kyle Tucker even got off to a slow start. If I had to boil it down to just one stat, that one stat is that he's hitting 100 off fastballs. Last year, he hit 321, and his expected batting average off fastballs right now is 280. His expected or his slugging is 200 off fastballs, expected slugging 549. We will not see Kyle Tucker hit 100 off fastballs this year. That's something I know to be the case. Would you agree or would you completely Yeah, agree? there's absolutely no chance. And, and again, this is where the baseball comes in, though, because we have a small sample size. It's 59 game or 59 at-bats. And he, let's say he hits one that normally would, would have snuck over the wall, and it's a fly out to the track. You talked about when we were talking about drag and those impacts there. If it If it's X miles per hour at whatever trajectory, that's where they get the expected batting average. So I think across the game, we're going to see that discrepancy between expected batting average and batting average or expected slugging and slugging because most batted balls that, that are barreled at whatever you know trajectory typically end up being hits. And those are not hits right now. I think Kyle Tucker is just one of the victims there uh, because everything else looks spot on. Everything else looks really solid. Uh, so far this season. And he's a guy that usually gets better as the year goes on. He was a second half star last year. Uh, so I'm expecting Tucker to be fine. It is worth noting though, too, that his launch angle is as steep as it's ever been, or I, I might have that backwards in the ball more up in the air than he ever yeah. has before. And this is the time where you don't want to do that as much. So he might just be getting punished a little bit disproportionately. Uh, and as he settles in, as well as hopefully the baseball being fixed, I still think Kyle Tucker's an MVP candidate. I agree. I think Kyle Tucker is an MVP candidate. Another guy who I think could be an MVP candidate that has not gone off to that great of a start is Luis Robert of the Chicago White Sox. I mean, he's a guy who's in 205 OBP at 222 and he's slugging 386. He's got two home runs and five steals because we know the power and the, and the speed is there, but he's been dealing with a little bit of nagging stuff and he just hasn't completely gotten going yet. But the quality of contact from Luis Robert is what I'm so excited about. I mean, we've got an X slugging in the 99th percentile. He's another guy who's hitting 143 off fastballs to start the year, expected batting average of 341. Expected slugging is a 550 point difference for Luis Robert. The great thing about, I, I say Robert and Robert, I gotta figure out which one it is. I'm gonna go with Robert right now. I really do think, and this is from just watching Robert and from looking at all the data, from a guy who had 383 off fastballs last year, and this year he's hitting 143, to the fact that he's still putting hard contact, he's just not getting lucky. And it's not a guy who's hitting, you know, the ball straight up into the air, and you know the exit velocity is good, but he's not hitting in line drives. 
I mean, he has 23% line drive rate. That's on par with 2020 where he had that great year. So, or actually he didn't have that great of a year um, in 2020, but the line drive rate is still solid. I think Luis Robert has, I just think there's no problems with Luis Robert. He's going to be really good this year. Yeah. I mean, again, another guy that's not hitting well against fastballs, right? Three for 21 against the heater. Uh, and talk about discrepancy, 143 batting average, 341 expected batting average. I mean, you just don't see that kind of discrepancy. Uh, Robert's a guy that he gets quality of contact. I mean, he hits the ball as hard as anybody. And he's doing that this year and just doesn't have anything to show for it. And again, it's just it seems like certain candidates are, are a little bit disproportionately affected by uh, the baseball. And then some guys are also just a little bit more unlucky. And I think that's exactly the case for Luis Robert. He's just been extremely unlucky uh and he's somebody that is just going to hit the ball a ton right like he's he's going to just pull the trigger a lot and he's going to hit the ball a lot so if, if that's impacted you know he's not someone that's going to have a 380 on base percentage he's going to hit the ball hard and and slug and right now it's just not happening for him in in the stat sheet but it's crazy because again savant is like discrepancy center right now you you just oh, see so you, I've never seen so much discrepancy between expected and, and current and the sample sizes are starting to get big enough here. Uh, so it's, and, it's pretty crazy to see. And the reason why I brought up the barrel thing when we were talking about the humidors and how barrels are traveling 10 feet shorter, Luis Robert is averaging a barrel 13.3% of his plate appearances. That's one of the best in the league, but yet he's hitting 205 with no power. So it's clear that some of those barrels are not traveling as far as they might have. Sometimes a double is now an out. Sometimes a home run is now a fly out to the warning track. Maybe a double turns to a single. Maybe it doesn't fly to the outfield the same. So that's why a lot of these guys, there's big discrepancies. So who's your next guy that you think has a, another large discrepancy? Yeah. And again, I also think it's the guys that don't that don't walk a lot. Right. The guys that really depend on the like the quality of contact that are really going to get knocked around by this. And uh, Dylan Carlson's one that is the most interesting because he doesn't have the gap in expected stats. And I, I was thinking about this. And, and again, this is you'd have to pretty much talk to Dylan Carlson uh, to really get to the bottom of this one. But I think about some of these hitters now. And they've got to feel it, right? I've I've heard players describe just a different feeling off the bat. And if you're starting to feel that, I, I just wonder if you're gearing up and trying to do more. Because Carlson is somebody that made adjustments before this season and wanted to tap into more power. He did that in the second half of last year in an effort to tap into more power. He was a little bit more aggressive, but also had that, that desire to, to try to crush things middle in. Uh, and he's a switch hitter that has had a ton of success from both sides of the plate. He's not striking out much this year, but the exit VLOs are low. The max exit VLO is low. He's barreling nothing. He looks like he's trying to do too much at the plate. And that's not really who he is. Like the chase rates as high as it's ever been. And, and I'm looking at some of these players, these young players that want to produce for a competitive team. And Carlson had such a good second half last year. I saw Carlson on the backfields this year uh, in Jupiter and he looked phenomenal. I saw him in spring training. I, I liked what I saw, uh, but it just seems like he's trying to do too much up there. And I'm really starting to wonder if that's going to start to trickle into the psyche of some of these hitters. It's just like, I don't know how much I can control because these baseballs aren't flying. I'm trying to crush this thing 
And it's resulting in them kind of getting out of who they are as a hitter. I'm seeing it up close with Jesus Aguilar too, a guy who, you know, he looks big. He looks like he crushes baseballs, but he's really a bat to ball guy that gets some lift and carry. He is horrible this year. And I'm seeing him try to sell out for more power. Highest strikeout rate I've seen from him in a long time because these guys are kind of compromising their approach. Instead of being doubles guys who hit home runs, they're just trying to leave the yard because they know those doubles aren't turning into home runs. And it seems like Dylan Carlson's just lost his approach. And my last guy who I do think will bounce back, but I'm slightly nervous because he did go from a ballpark where it's incredibly easy to hit and also a team that really knew how to use him to the Seattle Mariners, where now he's been off to a bad start. That's Jesse Winker. He's hitting 154, 338 on base percentage. Still taking a ton of walks, but he's only slugging 173 with a 511 OPS. This is a guy who last year, I mean, last year he was incredible. He hit 305, 394 on base with a 556 slugging, and he was hitting a bunch of doubles and a bunch of home runs. Now he has no home runs. He has one double in 52 at-bats. And, but he's another guy with a large discrepancy between his Woba and his ex Woba. So the quality of contact has been solid, and the expected batting average is 292, a lot higher than that 154 mark. My only thing with Jesse Winker is this a guy who truly will bounce back because the numbers would say that he should, but I think there's a couple of question marks in there. Yeah, I, I think he's going to be okay. It's pretty wild to see how much he's walking. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I think that's good. Obviously that that bodes well um, because I think he's going to hit better than 154, but this is, he's on pace for the highest walk rate of his career, not chasing at all. Seems really comfortable. I think part of that is also because he's being protected from lefties for the most part. I mean, they've put him out there a little bit, but for the most part facing more righties more frequently. And that's the weird thing is that, He's struggling still despite that. I've liked the approach left on left where he's been a little bit more patient knowing like, okay, I don't hit lefties well. I'm going to try to take my walks. He's a guy that went from Cincinnati, a bandbox of a park, to one of the more pitcher-friendly ballparks in Seattle and has the dead-end baseball or the ball that's just not not flying as far, uh, kind of coinciding with that. That's tough. Uh, when you have both of those things working against you, it's not like Jesse Winker is a guy that hits 480 foot homers. It's a lot of home runs, but it it's just kind of your regular run of the mill homers. And now a lot of those just aren't leaving the yard as much. Uh, but I think Winker is going to be fine. He looks more than comfortable at the at the plate. Uh, he's still putting bat on ball. It just hasn't translated totally yet, and I think it will. Especially because Great American Ballpark. The reason why I'm really harping on that is because it's not that far off from Coors Field in terms of offensive production consistently at that park. You look at baseball savant's park factors, it's right up there with Coors Field. So when you have a guy going from there to a completely different pitcher's type ballpark and not hitting as well, I'm going to have my worries. A hundred percent. What I do like though is, you know, just, just still the steady approach and and Winker has the track record. And and what I like is that the Mariners aren't going to ask as much of him. Like on the reds, he had to be the guy, one of the guys, right? Like one of the guys that's leading that offense. He plays an integral part in the Mariners offense, but he doesn't need to be playing every single day. He doesn't need to be playing lefties every single day. He could just be 
a guy that fills a role. Uh, and I think he's going to start to settle in and fill that role, but it's got to be a little bit jarring too. We talk about the psyche of it. You go from a park where, you know, the ball is getting out left and right. And you go to a park where it's very difficult You talk about park factor. That's bottom six stadiums, I believe six or seven. And on top of that, now you're dealing with the baseball. I know that hitters are starting to think about it and they're starting to feel it. And another guy that's surprisingly struggling against the heater. It seems to be a trend with the guys off the slow starts, which is kind of interesting. Well, we think they're going to bounce back, but we aren't told. Well, I guess to end it, because um, I think Dylan Carlson was the one person whose numbers didn't really line up. I guess, what do you think Dylan Carlson is going to end up as at the end of the season? I, just I know think it's hard. I think he's too talented. I, I like He looks a r- little bit rough up there right now. Um, and he's the only guy, I think, out of this whole list that really looks rough. I think most of the other guys... The numbers aren't translating yet, but they look all right at the plate. Carlson looks a bit lost. And again, he looks like a guy that's trying to do too much to me right now. I think he's going to settle in. I think he's going to be just fine. Um, But I I still see 280, 275 with with 20 plus home runs from Carlson. But it's just been a really rough start out of the gate. I I do think baseball is going to adapt and they're going to fix that whole situation. Uh, And I think even if it's somewhat of a placebo effect, it just seems like it's a little bit mental at the plate for, for Carlson right now. He needs to see one go over the over the wall, and I think he'll be in better shape. Yeah, he's popping up. He's grounded out. It's just it, he's not it, the basically what Dylan Carlson is doing. He's not hitting a lot of line drives like he usually does, and you know he's not hitting fastballs either like he usually does. But that'll do it for this episode. A little bit of a shorter podcast because tomorrow and Friday we're going to be a little bit longer starting pitchers, and then Friday we're going to have a big old episode as well. Check out Loop. It is our new partners, and we're dealing with baseball cards here, people. Loop is a great website. It's an app that you can download on the App Store. Use the link in the episode description. Think of it as Twitch times your local card shop. We're doing consistent breaks on Loop all the time. Also, check out our chalkboard. That's in the episode description. That's our big baseball group chat. Get yourself some Just Baseball merch. I'm rocking my T-shirt right now. We have that's in the episode description as well. Anything else, Arm, before we go? Uh, not too much. Just uh, very excited to continue to do the state of the division. I'm um, enjoying that. State of the NL East is uh, what, I'm be, what I'll be doing with Ryan Finkelstein. And uh, just the state of the division has been doing well with the numbers, and I'm glad people are enjoying it. And uh, definitely go check that out for an update across the league for each individual division every individual day, uh, or I guess six out of the seven days a week, uh, which is also on every podcast platform. And give us a follow on all of our social medias. Those tags are in the episode description as well. With that, 